a reading from the great philosopher Anthony Bourdain. As you move through this life and this world, you change things slightly. You leave marks behind, however small. And in return, life leaves marks on you. Most of the time, those marks on your body or on your heart are beautiful. Often, though, they hurt. This is Becoming Human, and I am Tyler Kleberger, and I'm going to skip the rhetorical acrobatics of intros on podcasts today. We're going to get right into it. I called this a brief guide on conflict resolution, and I'm realizing that might not have been necessarily true. But here we are. We've looked at the conceptual side, which in my disposition on the world is actually quite important. And the more you understand about what you are working with, the better you'll be able to do it. It's knowing the map before you travel. You want to get the most out of your new smartphone or whatever you have. And the more you understand the operating system, the more effectively you will use it. So after doing that, we can now embark on how we pull off healthy conflict resolution. And while we mostly talked about relationships, We're also going to go over some strategies to avoid that are very prevalent to the social discourse that finds its clearest and most disturbing manifestations on the interwebs. But even all of these, uh, you'll notice these models, these these theoretical uh, strategies, they're used for like nation state conflict management too. So so this isn't just about interpersonal stuff. This, This is groups. This is communities, this is cultures, this is societies. It it goes in both directions. And remember, the whole point of going into this was because I made a case that conflict can be an invitation for growth. So hopefully once we get here, we can see that, you know, conflict's natural, it's inevitable, it's going to happen by being alive, and it isn't good or bad in and of itself. It's going to change things. It's going to make things different, and how you respond and navigate the conflict will determine whether that's going to be good and positively transformative, or if it's going to be not so good and possibly even destructive. So let's get into it. Conflict resolution is in our grasp. We ended the last episode by looking at the strategies of avoidance, yielding, competition, conciliation, and cooperation. So how did these particular strategies relate to the most common models and theories? And remember, you're working with different approaches, right? You've you've got the active constructive, active destructive, passive constructive, passive destructive. There's always going to be this dual concern. How much are you concerned about the self? How much are you concerned about the other? All that's in play. So now that we've got that, let's look at let's look at the most common models. And and I say most common because there's hundreds of these. These are the ones that either grasp the central ideas the most, or you know, quite frankly, they're just the most popular. So the first one I want to cover 
is a model called the cooperative model. And you can probably assume which strategy this is hinting at. This model suggests that one must bring a cooperative orientation to negotiation. And again, this can be marriage. This can be other interpersonal relationships. This can be communal fights. Uh, and this could be like war treaties with nation states. But the main premise is that, you know, you're going to use the cooperative strategy and through trust and through, you know, mutually beneficial intentions, the goal is that both parties can win here. Now, the emphasis of this model is that a, a person must have a balance to their goals. They must still hold on to their self-assertion, right? High concern for the self, thereby confronting, you know, the avoidant or yielding strategies. But they also must consider the goals of the other, at least consider, and that confronts the competitive approach. Now, taken at face value, the cooperative model can easily stop at conciliation, which was strategy number four. The main emphasis of this theory is to get participants to consider that win-win scenarios are possible by paying attention to the concerns of both the self and the other. Pretty basic. This model has been utilized a lot, uh, become very common in mediation circles. But that's just kind of the beginning. From this model, folks have begun trying to figure out how to best make this happen. And that leads to the second model called principled negotiation. This is one of the most mainstream articulations of conflict resolution, and rightly so. It's damn good. The most effective function of this model is the suggestion to view a conflict through the lens of interest as opposed to positions. And what I love about this concept is that the authors are not aiming so much to provide, you know, the ideal conflict mediation approach. They're not trying to give the best theory. They're trying to provide a way for those of us who tend to be competitive, aka all of America, to find a way to transcend our competitive reality. And the example they use is the hypothetical conflict over an orange. If two parties simply fight over the orange, right? One will have to win, the other will have to lose. Somebody's going to get the orange in the end. So you got two groups or two people with high concern for the self, trying to dominate and assert themselves, use force against the other so they can get the orange at the end of the day. The only way this won't happen is if they compromise and split the orange. However, if all they're going to do is compromise, at best we're going to have conciliation. And they're going to cut the orange in half and both parties kind of win. Nobody wins fully. They're also trying to avoid that, you know, you can't just give up your, uh, your interests, the, the thing that you need uh, and resort to yielding or even avoidance there's a chance that they might find that their interests for the orange are different. And this is why the theory is so particular about separating interest from positions. Okay, so the position in this example is that they want the orange. Their interest, however, could be that one might want the orange for, say, the juice, and the other might want the orange for, say, the rind. 
So they have different interests involved, even though their positions are combatively the same. And yes, the orange is a trite example here. Uh, but the reality is that within our positions, we often have interests that are way more compatible than our positions make it feel like. And so approaching a conflict from this perspective, you know, of inherent interest, that's going to allow both parties to fully win while still respecting their concern for themselves. The language uh, used here is of mutual satisfaction, integration, and invested problem solving. And that finds fulfillment when you separate the positions from the interest and you find ways to still have concern for the self while giving concern for the other. Particularly, uh, Fisher and Uri, who are the authors of this model, suggest four standards to enact this specific method of cooperation amongst people who tend to be competitive. So anytime you enter into a situation like this and you tend to be a competitive person, here's four things you should do. First, separate the person from the problem. Second, focus on interests, not positions. Third, generate options, right? Creative problem solving. And fourth, find agreement based on objective criteria, which is best done by an unbiased mediator. In fact, this whole model is best done with a mediator. You know, now that I say that, in fact, most conflict resolution is best done with a mediator. Anyways, using this approach relationally allows us you know, not only to find satisfactory conflict mediation, okay, but this also helps us construct better relational futures. Because if you engage with another person like this, there is a better interdependent connection. And if you actually generate outcomes, it helps sustain the relationship over time, despite our continued dialectics. Principled negotiation is a great model. However, it didn't cover everything. So from here, the principled negotiation model kind of revealed some aspects of conflict resolution that hadn't really been brought up. So principled negotiation was a monumental step in the progress of conflict resolution. But like most progress, you know, finding one improvement often leads to new problems in different contexts. And that brings us to a third model, which is the human needs model. The issue raised in the human's needs model is that interest and agreement are good if the conflict does not deal with basic human needs. So if you have a situation in which the fundamental needs of one party are not being met, then you do not have a relationship where both sides are intrinsically functioning interdependently. So the good things about the principled negotiation theory can't happen yet. You have to address something else first. Therefore, you know, if you came to a compromise or, or, you know, just having a principled negotiation, it could still mean that one party has to forego certain health in order to meet the needs of the other. What, what I mean is that both parties cannot win in a situation of inequality because one party has already determined control and power over the other. And if said person does not make compromises that allow the elevation of the person who's been dominated, then the unstable relational structure will just continue, even if they've figured out a way to overcome their positions and focus on their interests and find ways to cooperate. They're already cooperating unequally. 
you have to address that. The person who is doing the dominating should not be satisfied with fulfilling their interests if their interests are also dehumanizing. So an example would be a marital relationship within domestic violence. If they are trying to determine how to have better communication, they should probably start with the violator agreeing to stop their violent behavior so that the victim is no longer a victim. Now they can start figuring out their other stuff. That's what this model suggests, that in situations of inequality, the first causes of problems need to be addressed before anything else can be fixed. Also, in contradiction to the principled negotiation model, is that in a case such as domestic violence, you can't separate the person from the problem if their forceful disposition is the cause of the problem. So issues like boundaries and third-party mediators are essential here as well. Some specific components of this model uh, are really helpful to kind of take it out of that ideological and how do you put this into practice? First, the mediation must begin by identifying the needs that are threatened. So before you can get into positions and interests and all that, if the person doing the threatening is truly cooperative, then this can happen where they deal with those first causes and then they move on. And, you know, you could do this without a mediator. The parties could figure this out themselves, but, but they'd have to be willing to, to name that more violent issue. But often a formal mediator is required. Uh, second, but before the conflict can move into the principled negotiation approach, the relational dynamic must be restructured so that both people can be accommodated. In short, in situations of human need discrepancies, counseling must precede conflict resolution. And finally, you know, though we may assume this is concerned with just interpersonal relationships, this model has been highly useful in national conflicts as well, especially when tyrannical or imperial relationships exist. So that was a great addition to the principled negotiation model, right? It sort of evolved. But then more evolutions happen. Uh, and the fourth one, it's not a specific model, but you see a lot of models that uh, pur purport this. It's called conflict transformation model. And again, you know, principled negotiation was, was a great culmination. So a lot of these theories are just better ways to get to that point and deal with issues that principled negotiation didn't address. And there's many theories utilizing this concept of conflict transformation. But the basic premise is that it seeks to eliminate unequal distributions of concern for either the self or the other by various parties. So it's based on that whole dual concern thing we brought up. In conflict transformation, it's about addressing the, the potential negative attitudes and you know the potential communicative uh, patterns that are inhibiting the cooperation strategy themselves. So the goal is if we can address these issues that are keeping cooperation from happening, we can transform the conflict into one where principled negotiation can happen. So this model does assume that cooperation is the goal, but practically it understands there's like a need to transform the participant's disposition before that strategy is even realistic. 
Na- namely, there's a focus in this in these models on discourse, right? You need to understand your own concerns. You need to recognize the other's concerns, and you need to give attention to how previous postures, previous behaviors, previous communication patterns have inhibited the relational dynamic. Once you do that, now cooperation is much easier. Now, figuring out how both parties can win and get their interests uh, affirmed is possible. So that's conflict transformation. Finally, we have conflict transmutation model. And the connection with the previous model is quite obvious. Literally, it changes a couple letters. But this one is trying to build off of the previous one, okay? Both of these models are primarily in response to the principled negotiation model that we already mentioned. And the goal of uh, the cooperative strategy is true for both of them. But the focus of conflict transmutation which takes its cue from alchemy, okay, is about altering the state of the participants so that they can engage the conflict in another form inherently different from the approach that brought them to the conflict. And, and that's like the fine print there. Whatever is causing the relational dialectic, the tension, the conflict, the striking together, you have to bring the participants together in a way Uh, that's different from whatever's been causing the problem in the first place. So the focus is not just addressing the negative attitudes and the negative communication patterns. It's also about addressing the underlying factors, the sources, all that brought the participants to a place of avoidance or yielding or competition. So if argumentation and heightened emotive screaming or, you know, people pleasing are the normal behaviors for the people involved, This model says that those need to be dealt with first before agreement and problem solving can continue. All right. That was a mouthful. Let's start getting out of the weeds here. I said this was going to be less theoretical and so far you could consider me a liar. But all of that was just like a priming of the pump so that we can see how we actually pull all of this off in a practical sense. And again, I really think that information matters. If you can be in a situation and, and somebody begins uh, interacting with conflict in a particular way, if you can sit there and go, ah, this is what's happening. And, here, you know, there's actually a model that people have talked about for how to address this. You're much more likely to be successful. At least that's what I think. But what should be obvious through all of this overly verbose meandering is that the desired outcome ought to be cooperation, even if you need to take some additional steps to get there. At the end of a mediation situation, if both parties leave with both of their interests fulfilled at the same time and with a deeper sense of connection, mutuality, investment as you know, inter- interdependent collaborators, then the hopes of having high concern for both the self-assertiveness you know, and the other through empathy will lead to a satisfying win-win. In terms of the types of conflict, this would be active constructive, which is exemplified in the cooperative strategy. And while the other strategies have their place, you know, even conciliation can be positive, cooperation is resoundingly promoted. Principled negotiation also may be the most tactile model for achieving such ends, but, you know, because of our tendency towards other strategies, you know, specifically 
competitiveness, the other models are certainly worth considering in accomplishing, you know, the active, constructive vision of cooperation. So that's that should be the goal. If, if you didn't get anything else so far, the goal is active, constructive cooperation using those strategies. But here's where this goal is most important. Because when you interact with the natural, inevitable reality of conflict in this way, you are not just resolving a conflict. I believe you are exemplifying the greatest propensity of being human. When you, if conflict's going to happen, and you can embody these values, these principles, these postures, these perspectives, we're just talking about being a human being at this point. So I do think all that's important. But I want to move on. I want to give some additional tips to making this a reality. And mostly for your situations of conflict, but hopefully you also see some of these tips. These are just a way to navigate the everyday experiences of your life. Once we do that, I'll give you some tips, and then we'll do some strategies to avoid and some skills to consider, and, and you know we'll be done with all of this. Now, I also understand that we probably won't remember all of the nomenclature we just traversed, and that's fine. So I also look at these tips and strategies to avoid and skills. I, I look at this as a way to practically engage all that theoretical chaos we just went through. So here's your tips. Ready? First, the focus is agreement. When you're in that situation, whatever conflict it is, can agreement happen in compromises? Yes. But full agreement should be pursued by fully satisfying both parties, which is cooperation. Really, the tip here is for the separate parties to stop seeing themselves as separate parties, but as a singular interdependent unit. When we start with our connection, the likelihood of agreement is exponentially increased. And this agreement isn't only about the outcome. We should be finding agreement on, you know, what the problem even is and where the problem came from and what behaviors and communications have been problematic up until this point and how each one perceives the nature of all these components, agreement, connection, interdependence, cooperation, all that has to come together. Second tip, always seek to reduce tension and de-escalate hostility. This is where a mediator can be exponentially helpful. And listen, Sometimes you need to separate those involved in the conflict and allow them to process the situation on their own. That's, that's the whole premise of the human needs model and, and the conflict transformation and conflict transmutation model. However, eventually, a catharsis must occur where each person has the opportunity to explain their experience and acknowledge the other's experience. Creating this climate is a must if conflict will actually be mediated. Third, and this is the easiest to do once you have all that theoretical information, pay attention to communication. How information is relayed can greatly promote or detract from the purpose and goal. And we'll get into some more depth on this in a minute, but through someone's communication, including your own, you know, are there hints of avoidance? Are there hints of competition? Is there a power game being played? Is someone 
rooted in their position, the language being used reveals a great deal about what kind of conflict management is occurring. A fourth tip. Focus on issues one by one. The complex web of relationships often leads to us intersecting various problems and making connections that you know you can't solve as a conglomerate. Complex issues require a complex approach. When looked at singularly, you can have a proper perspective of the specific issues and find solutions. And those solutions coincidentally usually help traverse the other issues awaiting your attention. So those are the big picture tips. Now let's dig a little deeper. Let's get into some destructive behaviors. And, you know, we tend to engage with conflict poorly. And so I think it's worth taking some time to emphasize what not to do as well. And we're going to start with communication because the nonverbal and verbal communication used is going to be the greatest catalyst of inhibition or health. So here's some that are just typically not helpful. Silence. And that can be some kind of withdrawal or that can be like using silence as a power stance. Reactive communication is not helpful. And this is emotive outbursts, you know, verbal attacks to detract from their real issues, you know, ad hominem attacks, stuff like that. Um, indirect communication is not helpful. And this is often passive. Sometimes it's passive aggressive. It, you need to be clear. Um, arguing is not helpful. Our initial response to information about us is to defend ourselves, right? Remember, cast aside your position if you want to achieve the interest of both. Now, beyond communication, there are a lot of other strategies to avoid. And I'm just going to get a list going here. First, ascribing motives. Don't assume you know why they did what they did or how they are feeling. Listen and give them a chance to directly express themselves. Right, You can still be angry about what they did, but ascribing the motives is not helpful. I already mentioned this one, ad hominem arguments. If the person expresses something, separate the person from the problem. This is part of the principled negotiation model. Separate their position, emotion, or action from their inherent identity as a human being. Okay, Don't attack them for something they said, something they believe, something they argued for. It's ad hominem arguments, okay? Counter-blaming. When we're feeling attacked or like we are in the wrong, don't attempt to shift focus away from yourself by blaming others. It's okay to accept the rebuke. Now, another one. Demanding withdrawal. This is often used as a means of escaping a situation yourself, but don't try to forcefully end a conflict situation by intimidating the other into giving up. You may avoid negative ramifications by doing that, but you will also ensure that constructive possibilities are eliminated. Um, next one, false logic. So this is synonymous with the problem of conflating separate issues and combining categorical conflicts into a singular conflict, but avoid presenting your interpretation of a behavior or a situation as a fact. You can certainly express your interpretation, 
But don't assume your story is the only objective story. Humans have a tendency to fill in the blanks with their imagination. All right, so approach the content of a conflict as objectively as possible while honoring the subjectivity you have experienced. Conflating modes of reasoning is a major issue in conflict resolution situations. And we're going to dive more into this one specifically in, in a few more episodes, but false logic. Next one is similar, arguing about different issues. So a potential unintentional act, right? Sometimes we don't, we don't know we're doing this, but you have to be aware if your responses to issues are about the same issue, right? Bringing in separate information to explain your response to what the other party said, it's, it's just going to keep you from actually talking about what the real issue is and, you know, the real interest involved, not just your position. Next is spiraling negativity. And this is where conflict mediation just starts getting out of hand. So when we use tactics such as ascribing motives or counterblaming or arguing about different issues, it can easily create an environment of just slewing on the negative and therefore, you know, you just keep digging into your possession. And if you sense this happening, like the only thing you can do is stop and reset. Because once we get going in that competitive argumentative approach, it's just going to keep spiraling further and further along those lines of reasoning. So that's another one. Uh, last on this list is stubbornness. Again, holding on to a position and competing for your concerns at the expense of theirs is undeniably a quick way to stalemate a conflict and ensure that satisfaction and constructive outcomes that they're just not going to even happen. Digging in on your position. If you do that, just know this ain't going to go very far. Now, that's the negative stuff. Now that that's out of the way, what should we actually do? Here are some things that we might not immediately consider, but are incredibly beneficial in order to conducively realize cooperative conflict management. First is reflective listening. This is like a signpost of empathy and therefore a way to uphold the concern of the other. Reflective listening is not just listening. It is affirmative listening that pays attention to details and emotions and nonverbals. And while you're listening, you're, you're using unobtrusive feedback to affirm the person's communication, invite further expression and response, etc. There are actually six different forms of feedback. Like this is reflective listening is not just a cool idea. It's, it's actually a thing. There's six different forms of feedback that are all designed to convey understanding and promote continued discourse. All right. And, you know, reflective listening probably just needs to be its own episode. But the basic idea is to see yourself as a mirror. You know, you're asking leading questions. You're affirming understanding. And you're reflecting the emotions of the speaker. And those are all important ways to do this. Now, not all communication, even verbal or nonverbal, is reflective. Like, Eye contact is important and a slight nod can be helpful, but you can also interrupt with nonverbals or you can act bored and that's not reflective listening. 
Essentially, reflective listening is a way to reflect back to the person an undistorted and accurate image of their own process. Mastering this art is complex. But listen, the intention is half the battle. Absolutely recommend that. Next is to accept criticism. To deter your inherent defensiveness, a posture must be owned of willingly hearing critiques. Accepting a rebuke does not mean that their criticism is objectively correct. It simply means that you accept their experience. They attack they offered is likely not absolutely true. It is true, however, that they have physically, mentally, or emotionally experienced that issue. In so being, that is now information that the mediation must work with, whether or not it's factual. Accept the criticism and use it to platform where the conversation is going to go next. Hopefully you do that productively. In a similar fashion, another skill that I would recommend is to be honest about your own subjectivity. Just as their experience is not the whole story, neither is yours. Your perspective is valid, men must be honored, but it must be recognized as limited. Neither party is working with all the information here. If the answers and the truth were so easy, we would not need mediation, and most likely we wouldn't have conflict. Complexity, however, it abounds. So if both parties can admit their limited, finite place in the world, now there's opportunity for leaving with a more informed perspective as a result. So more must be said about this, and we will, we will talk about this situation actually in an upcoming episode. But that leads me to the next one. Map making versus arguing. We've already addressed the detriment of argumentation as a means to resolve conflict. You know, that's on, that's on the list of, you know, things to be careful of. In its place, and, and in collaboration with the cooperative strategy and principled negotiation model, is a technique called map making. The simple version is that instead of approaching an issue in terms of competition where you, you must hold to your position and defend it, map making encourages both parties to take the information they are working with and add it to the pool of knowledge for both to share. At the end of the venture, both people will have a more full version of the map than when they started, especially if they realize the insanity of arguing about whose version of the map is better. Again, uh, a fuller treatment is needed, and, and that's actually where we're going next with the, the subsequent episodes, you know, map making and perspective. But... Before we end our pursuit of conflict resolution, I want to address two final words. Everything I've said here is very theoretical, very abstract. Uh, you know, even the practices and the skills, they sound great on paper. It's a very ideal approach to conflict resolution. Needless to say, there are at least two people involved in any conflict. Problem is, you can only control one of those people. So what do you do if cooperation is not possible, especially if such lack of participation can be harmful to you? So the first final word, create boundaries. There may come a time when potential resolution is no longer possible. Please attempt the healthy processes above as much as possible but also be willing to admit 
when peace is hopelessly futile. Conflict resolution is certainly desirable, but it may not be available in certain contextual realities. And the only possibility may be for termination over healing. That could happen. But one more word. Let's end by speaking of something that might connect the dots of navigating a world in which conflict will be constant. Common bond. The key, in my opinion, to unlocking conflict resolution as, as the collaborative, cooperative approach where invested trust and commitment set the stage for mediation is to realize that your commitment to the person on the other side of the table must transcend the conflict itself. Here's the deal. We are strange beings. When we come in contact with each other, our contradictions make the potential beauty quite uncertain. Our diversity may drive us apart. Recognizing the common bond that holds us together gives us a unity in which our diversity can be held even utilized like to foster the relational potential of humans like us in whatever conflict you find yourself commit to the process of cooperation because if we don't one of us will lose and if one of us loses well we all lose that's it for the not-so-brief guide on conflict resolution. Hopefully this offered some helpful thoughts and tools and can be something you can come back to, you know, as various situations arise. Uh, You you can find more about this at uh, tylerkleberger.com. There's stuff on there about lots of things we talked about today, you know, changing other people, direct communication, relationships, disagreement and arguing, empathy. You know, you can pursue all of those ramblings. Um, and as always, feel free to reach out. You got questions about the content or questions for me that you'd like me to address in an upcoming episode. Uh, just contact me from the website. But I'm looking forward to exploring map making and perspective next time. We'll see you then. <laughs>